You are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We're going to continue on in our new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. So two weeks ago, we started with an introduction. Last week, we started with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And this Sunday, we get to focus in on the second commandment. So let's give ourselves to God's good word. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. So we have the second commandment before us, and to understand the the importance of this commandment, we need to set the stage with, with two truths. So when you open up your Bible and you're reading through the scriptures, it doesn't take too long, it doesn't take too much study to be confronted with two truths. And the first truth is about God. It's a rather simple truth. We were just praying about it. God is in charge. That's who God is. He's in charge. And so you open up your Bible and this idea is pressed into us from the get-go. We come to chapter, Genesis chapter 1 and we find this compelling record of God's speech. God commands light and it obeys him. God commands earth, sky, and sea and they obey him. God commands the creeping things and the swarming things and the flying things, and they all obey him. Psalm 33 reflects on the first chapter of the Bible, and the psalmist says this, worshiping God, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in a storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The psalmist is rejoicing in the fact God is in charge. And as you press on in the Bible, you quickly find out that this God of Genesis chapter 1 is in control of absolutely everything. And we have to stress this. This God of the Scriptures is not like us. Think about our own lives. We're given charge of certain domains, areas, But our charges are always restricted, they're always limited, and they're always held to account. Think about it. Parents are given charge of their children, but not someone else's children, and they always have to give an account to God how they parented their children. Or think about the teacher. The teacher is given charge of his own classroom, but he's not given charge of the classroom across the hallway. That's someone else's classroom. 
And he always has to give an account to someone else, whether that be the principal or the school board. But God is different. When we come to the scriptures, we find that his charge is not limited, it's not restricted. And whatever category comes into our minds, whether it's art or politics or history or philosophy or anything else, calculus, physics, God is in charge of that. Whether you explore the farthest reaches of space or the very depths of the earth, God is in charge of that. Whether you consider the peoples in Canada or the peoples in South America or in Europe, God is in charge of them. Psalm 135 verse 6 tells us the scope of God's charge. The psalmist worships saying, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And what the psalmist is saying, there is nothing in created reality that God's charge does not extend over and encompass. And if we go on in the scriptures, we realize that this God is never held to account for what he has done. He's unlike us. He never has to go undergo a yearly performance review where his work is, is scrutinized. He never has to appear before a court where, where people, where judges call into question what he has done. There is no higher authority than God's. No one can judge this person. So the first truth is God, and he's in charge. The second truth has to do with us, humanity. Man is not in charge, but he thinks he is. So we can go to the book of Daniel, and we're given this stunning story of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. And now this king really, he really thought he was something. And by all human measurements, he, he was something. He was king of the most powerful empire in the world. He conquered peoples and nations and they served him. He stood before the peoples and he spoke and his word became law. Whatever he desired, he got. He was in charge, or at least he thought so. And so one evening, Nebuchadnezzar took a stroll on the roof of his palace, and his eyes looked around at all that he saw, and his heart was made glass, looking at the city, looking at the palace. He was considering what his charge had brought, what it had wrought. And then he said this to himself with great pride, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In that statement, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was speaking the truth. He truly thought that he was in charge. But before he could even finish this boast, before he could even finish this thought, someone showed up and spoke to him. And it was the king of kings and the lord of lords. And God said to this proud king, The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, catch this, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God shows up. And what does he say to Nebuchadnezzar? I'm in charge. Go play with the beasts of the field for seven periods of time so that you might know this. And what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's story is a very simple way to summarize our story from Adam to our present time. In Nebuchadnezzar's story, we see the very heart, the very nature of sin. In sin, we truly think that we are in charge. We believe that our word dictates reality. We believe we get to order our lives any way we choose. And we believe we're not going to be held accountable for our decisions and actions. And if we give a careful assessment of our, our society, our culture, our families, our church, our very own souls, 
we will see the fruit of this rebellion. There is no part of our existence that is free from this contamination. We can go back to those categories. Look at art, look at science, look at politics, look at philosophy, look at history, look at calculus. Whatever your mind can conceive of, they've been contaminated by this willful pride. I'm in charge, we're in charge. And worst of all, and worst of all, you will find this rebellion in the most sacred sphere of life, the worship of the one true God. In sin, we believe we have a fundamental right to worship God any way we please. So we have these two truths before us. We have the truth about God, he's in charge. And then we have the truth about humanity. He's not in charge, but in sin, he thinks he's in charge. And this, these two truths set us up perfectly to understand the gracious intention of the second commandment. And so we can ask, what is God trying to get done in the second commandment? What is God trying to accomplish with this word? So St. Augustine lived a long time ago, and he wrote this massive book as the empire of Rome was falling called The City of God. And in this book, he's struggling with these two truths. God is in charge and the folly of human sin. And he writes this. It's so good. He says, For the dominion of the Almighty cannot be eluded, And he who will not piously submit himself to things as they are, mocks himself with a state of things that does not exist. So do you understand what Augustine is saying here? He's saying this, to think you're in charge when you're really not in charge is a supreme act of folly. When we think and assume we're in charge, all we are doing, Augustine says, is we are mocking ourselves, just heaping ridicule and shame upon our own heads. And worst of all, In sin, we don't even blush. We don't even turn red in the face with our foolishness. In sin, Augustine says, we're just like Nebuchadnezzar, taking a stroll on our palace roof, thinking we're something, thinking we're in charge when we're really not. This is where we come to the second commandment. And the good news this morning is this. God doesn't want us to be fools. God doesn't want us to be fools. In the second commandment, God aims to heal our foolish hearts. He intends to free us from our sinful delusion of thinking we're in charge, thinking we're just like King Nebuchadnezzar. And he aims to bring us to a joyful and obedient place of worship. He's working for our good in this commandment. He he wants us to enjoy him. And that's what the second commandment is all about, freeing us from folly and bringing us to a place of enjoyment of God. That sounds good. It sounds like we need this second commandment. I need it. You need it. And so this leads us to ask another question. How does the second commandment do this? How does the second commandment do this? How does the second commandment free us from folly? And how does it lead us to a place of joyful worship? How does it lead us to enjoy God for who he is? We'll find the answer in the text of Scripture. We have to go and look at the commandment and study it and we will learn. So as you look in your Bibles this morning at the text, the second commandment, you'll notice that the text consists of of three components. First, there is the ban. The Lord is prohibiting something. Then there's the rationale for the ban. There's a reason why the Lord is prohibiting this action. And last of all, there are the consequences. The Lord is going to do something with those who obey His word and those who disobey His 
word. And so we're going to work through the text, looking at these components one by one, with the eye to see how God is aiming, working to heal our hearts. So let's start with the band, the first component. Look at your Bibles, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So we ask a very simple question right away. Well, what is the Lord banning here? Well, he's not banning art, painting, sculptures, photography, music. He doesn't say there to be no artists among you. There to be no artists in the people of God. There to be no art in your homes. Rather, the commandment has a focus, a laser-like focus on the issue of worship. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, the Lord says. So we can think back to last week. The first commandment taught us what? Taught us that we're to worship the Lord alone. Now, in the second commandment, the Lord bans the use of images in worship. Now, we can take a step back and think about this. The Lord bans the use of images in worship. We get the idea of the, the, the importance of the first commandment. That strikes at our hearts. But here we come to the second. Don't use images in worship. And that doesn't seem to strike our hearts as that important. I don't know about you, but I'm not tempted to make a little figurine of Yahweh, the Lord, and put him in my pocket and carry him around with me. I'm not tempted to sit down in my private worship, read the Bible, sing songs to the Lord, and pull out a little figurine of the Lord Jesus and pray through it. I don't know about you, but I'm not tempted to do that. And so how does this commandment have anything to do with us? Well, we need to turn and get some help. And we get some help by going to the history of the church. The church has thought about the second commandment for 2,000 years. And so the Heidelberg Catechism helps us on our way a bit. So just listen here and key in on what it's saying. The Catechism is a, a series of question and answers, and so it starts, question, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? Answer, that we in no way make any image of God. Okay, we got that. But it goes on, it says this, nor worship in any other way than he has commanded in his words. Question, may we then not make any image at all? Answer, God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. Okay, that's helpful. Catechism's pointing us somewhere. We can turn to another historical document, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So more question and answers. Question. What is required in the second commandment? Answer. Key in on this. The receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his words. Okay, that's helpful. Question. What is forbidden in the second commandment? Answer. The worshiping of God by images, or key in on this, or any other way not appointed in his words. So if we carefully listen to these catechisms, the, the question and answers back and forth, we begin to see the, the practical relevance of the second commandment. These catechisms are faithfully digging down into the text of Scripture. Yes, the commandment forbids, prohibits, the making of images to worship the Lord, but there's more to it these catechisms are saying, and they want us to see it. 
And the ultimate issue the catechisms detect is the matter of who is in charge. And they're asking us, will Israel, will we worship the Lord according to his word or according to our own wisdom, our own desires, our own thinking, our own ingenuity? And the commandment this morning, in light of the catechisms, comes to us and confronts us saying, there is a right way to worship the Lord and there is a wrong way to worship the Lord. And so what is the commandment doing? Well, it's regulating the worship of the Lord. We must worship the Lord according to his words. That's the principle underneath the ban. And so we have the ban in front of us. Now we have to come to the rationale, the reasoning, the why for the ban. And what's so great about the second commandment is that it gives us rationale. Some of the other commandments don't give us explicit rationale. We have to go elsewhere in the scriptures to find it. But right here, we find the rationale, the why. So we can ask, well, why are idols forbidden? Why are images forbidden in the worship of Yahweh? Look at verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The reason for this ban of making images and worshiping the Lord through images lies in the character of God, who he is, what he is like. God is jealous. And what we hear of the Lord here in Exodus chapter 20 in the second commandment is no fluke. This attribute is repeated again and again throughout Israel's story. Moses preaches, Exodus 34 verse 14, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And he goes on, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So what in the world does it mean for the Lord to be jealous? And so we know from the scriptures that God is holy and good. And so we can't think of the toddler who is jealous for his toys. He's not going to share with his sister or his brother. He's going to keep them to himself, greedy. Rather, we should think of the marriage bonds. So many of us, when we got married, made vows. And these are the vows I made to my wife from the Book of Common Prayer. It goes like this. Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keeping only to her so long as you both shall live? So rightly understood, when we think about marriage, when we think about the, the vows we made when we got married, these vows demand jealousy. Listen to the language of these vows. Forsaking all others, keeping only to her. Those are jealous words. And as we think about it, no righteous husband will stand idly by if a man comes along and, and begins to hit on his wife. What's going to happen? Well, there should be a righteous explosion of jealousy, and that's good. That's a good thing. A husband has a right for his wife's undivided, undiluted affection. And this is what it means for the Lord to be jealous. Because of the Lord's covenant with Israel and his redemptive deeds towards these people, he has the righteous right to demand their undivided, their undiluted affection. They're in a marriage bond with the Lord. And they're to give their hearts only to him. We have to press in here because this doesn't give us the rationale. Why does making a carved image of the Lord spur him to jealousy as if the, the marriage covenant has been broken? 
In this act, they aren't leaving behind Yahweh for the gods of the nations, Baal or Molech or Asherah. They're not making a substitution. They're still worshiping the Lord. They're just worshiping the Lord through an image or a sculpture. It's just an aid edifying their hearts to to worship the Lord. What's so wrong with that? Why is that bad to have a little figurine of Yahweh in your pocket helping you out in your private worship or in the temple liturgy? Why is that so bad? We can find some help this morning from our old dead Dutch friend. We heard from him last week, and we can hear from him again. Dear Hardest Voss. And he's wrestling with the rationale. What is the connection between this, this ban and the character of the Lord? What is going on here? And he writes this. This is not easily described. Thanks. And he goes on and he says, We may perhaps define it under the category of magic. Magic is that paganistic reversal of the process of religion in which man, instead of letting himself be used by God for the divine purpose, drags his God down to the level of a tool, which he uses for his own selfish purpose. Magic creates for itself the material means of compulsion that will bring the deity to do its own bidding. That's a heavy quote. There's a lot there, but we need to see this. Voss detects a sinister motive in the work of making images and worshiping the Lord through images. So as we think about worship, worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, it's a top-down approach according to the Bible. There are two roles. God is in charge. He tells man how to worship, when to worship, where to worship. And what does man do? Man responds in obedience and says, Yes, Lord, I will worship you as you told me to worship. But what happens in image-making And worshiping the Lord through images. Well, Voss tells us that these roles are reversed. They're flipped upside down. Well, Voss is telling us that this image making, what the Lord is banning here, is essentially a power play. Man now gives the directions to the Lord, and the Lord now is compelled to obey man. So ultimately, the issue at hand in the second commandment is who is in charge? Who is in charge? And with this, we see just how foolish it is to commit this sin and why it excites the jealousy of the Lord. Think about this. Here is a man made from the dust of the earth, fashioning an image of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Here is a man, small and finite, dictating the terms of worship to the God who is infinite beyond measure. Here is a man, frail and weak, attempting to order around, coerce the almighty God. We see it. It's a picture of utter folly, and we see why it excites the Lord's jealousy. By making images or worshiping the Lord any way we choose is attempting to dethrone God and set ourselves upon his throne. And so what's the rationale here? Well, image making, or we can apply it to our own context, worshiping God in the way we desire is a power play at heart. It's an attempt to take charge of God. It's that basic human instinct in sin to take charge. So we have the ban, we have the rationale, now we need to think about the consequences of this. So when God speaks to humanity, he holds humanity to his word always. That's a truth we can bank upon this morning. And so we have to ask, well, what is going to happen to those who reject the word of the Lord? What happens to those who choose their own way of worship? Verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
This is a verse that trips us up sometimes. We say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean here? Am I going to be judged for the sins of my father or the sins of my grandfather or my great-grandfather? That does not seem fair. What is my great-grandfather? I don't even know him. I never met him. What does he have to do with me? So we have to be clear about verse 5. God only judges the guilty. God only judges the guilty. Look at the end of verse 5. Who is the Lord dealing with? Those who hate me. Those who hate me. This applies only to those who hate me. And the sad reality at work is that when a father sins and continues in his sin, not repenting, the reality is that his children will likely follow in that same path. You can think about it, about making a path through the bush. If a father makes this path through the bush, digs it deep, it's likely that his children will walk in that same path. And the point is this. When it comes to those who hate the Lord, the Lord will not be slack in punishment with them. The Lord is preaching to us, he will not forget to punish sin today, tomorrow, or a hundred years from now. If it's dad, if it's grandpa, if it's great-grandpa, he will punish those who hate him. But as we read on, we find out that this isn't the only thing the Lord has to say to us. Look at verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord threatens us, and the Lord can do that. He is God, and his warnings are good for us, and we need to heed them. But he also does something else. He doesn't just move us to obedience through threats, but he also moves us to obedience through promises, through overtures of love. So note the differences between verse 5 and verse 6. The Lord is going to visit sin to the third and fourth generation, but he's going to show steadfast love to thousands of generations. And the Lord wants us to catch this. He's saying, put verse 5 and verse 6 on a scale, and what's going to happen? One is going to be heavier than the other. He wants us to see just how extravagant his love is. His love, his mercy, his grace reaches further, stretches farther, encompasses more than his wrath. The Lord's point is this. It's rather simple. When it comes to those who love him and obey him, he will not forget his promises to them. Not today, not tomorrow, not 10,000 years from now. And you can bank upon this. The Lord will not stop doing good to the person who loves him. That's the gospel truth. And so we have the ban in front of us. And we dug into it and we found the rationale of the ban. And then we hear the consequences. And as we meditate on the second commandment, we have to realize that the stakes couldn't be any higher with the second commandment. The stakes couldn't be any higher. We have to worship the Lord as he desires. There are threats and there are promises at stake here. So we need to bring the second commandment home to our hearts and we can ask, well, how can I know if I'm obeying the second commandment? If this is so important to the Lord, how can I know if I'm obeying this word? How can I know if I'm walking in the path of obedience, worshiping the Lord as he desires, or if I'm taking a stroll with King Nebuchadnezzar on his rooftop? How can I know if I'm a fool or if I'm wise? This is so important. So I have two questions for you this morning, two diagnostic questions. And the first question is this. What are you doing right now with the Lord Jesus Christ? What are you doing right now with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And the truth of the matter, there is only one way to obey the second commandment, and the path of obedience to the second commandment terminates upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God will not accept your worship, and you must hear this, God will not accept your worship, your obedience, your love, your person, your life, if it does not come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, or what your intentions are, or how zealous you are, he will not accept you except through Jesus Christ. We can listen to the scriptures. Jesus comes to us in John 14, verse 6, and he preaches the second commandment to us. And what does he say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. You want to worship the Lord as he desires? Jesus says, you worship him through me. The Apostle Paul comes to us. He speaks to the church. And what does he do? He preaches the truth of the second commandment. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul's saying, do you want to worship the Lord? you want to obey this commandment? There's only one way, the mediator, Jesus Christ. So there's the diagnostic question. What are you doing right now with the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to work this into our souls. And so let's work at this. Jesus has come to us, and he has told us, that he is true bread from heaven. How can we know if we're obeying the second commandment? Well, the fool, the disobedient, will try to bake their own bread and satisfy their hearts. But what will the obedient man do? What will the obedient woman do? We'll take Christ Jesus as offered in the gospel and feed upon him. Jesus tells us that he is living water. What does it look like to obey the commandment? Well, the fool will dig his own well. He'll scraw, he'll claw, and he'll scratch, and he'll dig down with his hands looking for water, but he'll find none, and this well will hold no water, as Jeremiah says. But what will the obedient man do? He won't dig, he won't scratch. He'll go to the well that is Christ Jesus and find eternal satisfaction. He'll find his heart made glad. Jesus has told us that he is the true vine. What does it look like to obey the second commandment or disobey it? Well, the fool will look far and yonder looking for a source of life, trying to transplant here or there, looking for some source to provide all the vital nutrients for this life. But the obedient man will come to Jesus and abide in him, knowing Jesus' words, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. Jesus has called himself the good shepherd. What does it look like to obey the second commandment? Well, the fool will look at skepticism with Jesus. He'll be filled with doubt, and he'll turn away from the shepherd's leading. But the obedient person will follow Jesus closely, giving thanks for his care at all times. And so I ask you this morning, are you obeying the second commandment? Are you obeying the second commandment? Or are you playing the part of the fool, only heaping scorn and ridicule on your head, thinking you're in charge when you're not? And the second commandment comes to us this morning. And it comes to us saying, you want to keep me? You must trust in Jesus. That's how you fulfill this word. You want to worship the Lord as he desires? Well, you worship the Lord as he desires by coming to Christ again and again and again. And the good news of the gospel this morning is Christ is before us. He is present and you can take him. 
And this is good news for the unbeliever and for the believer. You can take him for the first time, or as a believer, you can take him for the second or the third or the hundredth or the thousandth time. He is here with us. And the word bids us to obey the second commandment. Take Christ and take him again. And so we must ask ourselves, what are we doing right now with the Lord Jesus Christ? The second question What are you doing with the gifts of Jesus? What are you doing with the gifts of Jesus? Jesus is a king, and he is a generous king, and he loves to give gifts to his people. That's the kind of king he is. And Jesus' precious gifts are arrayed in front of us right now. Think about it. The gathering of God's people, the preaching of the word, the singing of hymns and spiritual songs, the prayers, the Lord's Supper. Jesus' gifts are before us. But the reality is it's quite easy to get discouraged as a Christian. When we think about it, these gifts look quite pale to what our culture has to offer. We're offered a measly cracker and a thimble of juice. And we know that there are better meals to be had in this world. We listen to a man stationed behind a metal pulpit. Clearly, there's better entertainment to be had in this world. And we look over, and the discouragement doubles. There are children. One of them's drooling. The other one can't stay on his seat. We look at our children, and we say, this is pointless. Clearly, there's something better for them, something more attuned, something that will actually hit their hearts and touch their present tastes and interests. And all of a sudden, when we're doing this work of comparison, these things don't seem so precious, and they don't seem like gifts anymore. They seem like drudgery. And despair begins to creep into our souls and we start saying this, will any of this do me good? And we look at our children, will any of this do my children good? And so I ask you this morning, will you obey the second commandment? Will you humbly and joyfully submit yourself and your family to Jesus' gifts or will you take charge thinking you know something that Jesus doesn't? Will you come in faith Or will you give way to faithfulness? And the truth is this. Jesus has given us these gifts. The gathering of the saints, the preaching of his word, the prayers, the singing of hymns and spiritual songs, the supper. And he has given these gifts for both the young and the old. For both the new believer and the old mature believer. For both the child who can't read yet or hardly sit still and the PhD student. And these gifts are not to be despised, they're not to be neglected, they're not to be eyed with suspicion or with doubt, they're to be received with thankfulness and gladness. These are Jesus' gifts to us. And Jesus wants us to know something about these gifts. If you carefully search out the scriptures, you will find that Jesus has filled each one of these gifts. Think about the preaching of the word. Think about the gathering of God's people physically together. Think about the prayers. Think about the supper. Jesus has filled each one of these gifts with his infinite power. And he promises that as we receive these gifts week by week, as we bring ourselves to them, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, he will work salvation in our midst. He promises that he will bring new creation into being. He promises that he will cast down the powers of hell and tread over the serpent. He promises that he will save our souls and our children's souls from sin. He promises that he's going to purify our hearts in holiness. He promises that he's going to establish a reign of eternal righteousness. 
He promises that he's going to come and gather the nations from their idolatry to worship him. So I ask you, are you going to obey the second commandment? And obedience to the second commandment looks like joyful reception of the gifts of Jesus. Coming Lord's Day by Lord's Day and receiving what Christ gives. And so church, the second commandment's before us. We've heard the ban. We've looked at the rationale. We've seen the consequences. And we need to know this. God does not want us to be fools. We take that to heart. God does not want us to be fools. And he gives us this commandment for our precious good. He intends to heal our hearts. And he intends to lead us to a place of joyful worship where we might enjoy God forever. And so what's the call this morning? The call is this. Give yourself to the second commandment joyfully and obediently. You'll find wisdom and life. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give thanks for your word this morning. And we pray that you would free us from folly. We have much foolishness in our hearts. We pray that you would lead us in the path of wisdom. We need your help this morning. Would you give us hearts to receive this word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.